0: You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the LA International Church of Christ family of churches, worshiping God in LA since 1989. Well, welcome to the West Side. It's great to be together. Um, God has been doing really so much throughout the world. And today we were going to do part three of our series, Known Throughout the World, but we're going to pivot and and we're going to change that. Uh, we're going to speak directly to what's going on uh, in our world right now. And there's a lot we need to take in. And I want our attention focused really on what is on all our minds and what God is revealing. So the title of today's lesson is Jesus and Justice. And we've been in a worldwide change. Uh, things have been very different from the months of lockdown from COVID to the uh, really uprising against uh, injustice. People are home. Uh, we're reading and watching uh, more books and watching uh, more shows. And a series of events occurred, really, that I think ignited the uh, uprising against injustice. And these weren't things that had not been happening before, but it just so happened these three events, each were videotaped and broadcast on TV and on social media in a powerful way. These tragic and racist events occurred in succession and it ignited something that I believe God allowed and even wanted to happen, not the tragedy, of course, but the response to it in a worldwide way. Of course, many of us have seen the Amy Cooper video highlighting racist uh, reality uh, with regard to uh, white fear and police suspicion toward blacks, where she calls 911 and really uses uh, that an African-American male is standing in front of her in a park as a weapon against him. Of course, then the murders of Ahmaud Aubrey and George Floyd by white men or white police officers, uh, these were vile and uh, and vivid. And righteous anger rightly erupted, uh, really tremendous. It's happened before. For uh, various reasons in our country recently, but uh, we've never seen it happen worldwide the way it has. And I believe God, He has such a deep heart for justice that He allowed these things because it's time that they change. And I think for us to be a part of that change, we must have compassion. We must feel this pain that so many do feel, but still some have not let themselves feel that pain. And you know, Jesus is our ultimate example. He had a heart for the hurting, for the marginalized. And He would feel this pain as deep as any one of us has ever felt it. We read in Luke 7, verse 12, about how He felt when He came upon a widow. It says, As He approached the town gate, A dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. He felt her pain, and he raised him from the dead, gave him back to his mother. We read about Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, and... The shortest verse in the Bible is maybe the most poignant. It simply says, as he saw the heart of those close to Lazarus, it says Jesus wept. It is time to absorb the pain of what so many of our black brothers and sisters have felt. I know many of us are are mourning, but some of us are still a little callous to it. And we don't want to feel that uncomfortable pain. We don't want to sit in that uncomfortable environment. But it's in that uncomfortable, in-between place of pain, wondering what to do, that answers begin to surface. You know, last Saturday, I went to Culver City at the Veterans Administration Building where we have our, our worship services. And out in the park, they had a rally, a Culver City for Black Lives. And while I was there... Uh, another sister, Rouette, was there. A number of other people from the ministry were there. I was there with my daughter. Uh, Rouette showed me a sign she had made. And here's what it said. She had written a hundred names, say their names, of those who were killed, unarmed people killed, by law enforcement and various other reasons. Unjustly. And I realize it is time for all of us to pause and really allow the pain to sink in. We cannot be dull. We must admit wrongs. And I know I talked to our church at midweek several weeks ago, a week and a half ago, and admitted that I had been dull. I wasn't letting the pain sink in. The atrocities I read in the news, I didn't want to to think about them. But I know my black brothers and sisters, when they see those atrocities, they're seeing themselves. They're seeing family members that they feel like that could happen. And some it has happened to for me to connect with the pain, I, I had to rewatch the video of George, Flo- George Floyd's killing all the way through and watch it and let it sink in. I watched the movie Just Mercy, which interestingly uh, depicted events that occurred in 1987. I was a sophomore in college in 1987. These things were not so long ago that tremendous injustice was being um, uh Performed and, and occurring in a culture that, you know, in my mind, I thought, no, we're a, we're a righteous society. We've done away with that, but it is going on in America. You know, during the movie, Carrie was livid. She wouldn't stop talking about how mad the racial injustice made her. I was glad for that. I remember as a kid watching the the series, the TV series Roots. And it was the first time I was introduced to the incredible evil of slavery and how it was a, a tremendous part of American culture. And the residual effect of it, last week's sermon I shared about the pizza. And really, the, the pizza was a depiction of slavery being polluted by that dirt that I poured on it. And you can't, you can't get the effects of it out. And the dirt, I had a brother mention to me, you know, the dirt's not just, um, uh, a neutral thing. It was caused by white, men who enslaved black men. Let's just own that. And as a result, that type of injustice still permeates our society. And we can't avoid it. we got to look at it. we got to admit it. Uh, I've read the book, uh, White Fragility and Crossing the Line, uh, in order to feel and understand and be able to comprehend what needs to happen. I want to be educated as a white man and see the depth of the current problem going on in our world, and own my responsibility, and step up to the plate, and carry the torch, and say, we will not stand for this, certainly not in God's church, but neither in the society where we get to have influence. You know, Dr. King says something that all of us, if you haven't seen this, you need to hear. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere my daughter wrote on her sign when we we're at the rally she wrote all lives can't matter until black lives matter and that's a true statement jesus does not support a political party but he does support love and equality for all people in america and in most of western civilization black lives have been marginalized and it damages all of us. MLK went on to say, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. We're intertwined. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And as I've studied some of these books, and I've I begun to open my eyes and see it, we just gotta admit, white supremacy, the, the kind that, you know, we all say, hey, that's bad. The dualistic view of anyone that's that way, they're bad. Yeah, that, that's not as prevalent the, uh, those that are violently outspoken against any black people. That, that's, that's not mainstream. But let me tell you what is mainstream. In our schools, in our media, in corporate America, little, in cor- corporate America, little nuanced, oftentimes unconscious biases, and sometimes conscious biases, infiltrate our society. There are other people who are marginalized. No question. But through capitalism and white men in particular, history shows that white men have oppressed black race individuals for selfish gain. And it must be eradicated from our society. And certainly in God's kingdom, it has no place. And we're fighting it. And I'm so grateful for our church, how uh, all nations we really are. You know, many of my fellow white brothers say, you know, I've had it hard too. I've had to work for everything I have achieved. And this may be true. Uh, we got to acknowledge that it may well have been hard for you and for all people. But to my white brothers, I can tell them the color of our skin has not been a contributing factor to why life is hard. Everyone has trials and difficulties to grow and succeed. But black people have the incredible added oppressing challenge of systemic cultural racism. It is a reality. And God is not okay with it. I am not okay with it. And anyone who says, I'm going to follow Jesus, cannot be okay with it. You know, to my black brothers and sisters and friends... Yes, you have had it more challenging because of the color of your skin and that is not fair. You have a hero who was tragically murdered and suffered in every way and that is Jesus. He's your hero. and He's my hero. To my white brothers and sisters, I say, do not look away. Own the reality of our world and lean in to change things. Yes, our mission to make disciples of all nations is fundamentally going to be the cure to the greatest cancers that exist. But we got to lean in. we got to do more than we have done as a congregation. We are intertwined with one another, black and white and every nation. And we must lift others up. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, we read about how Jesus can connect with us. It says, since the children share flesh and blood, He Himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And down into verse 18, it says, because He Himself was tested by what He suffered, He is able to help those who are being tested. You see, Jesus can relate to all of us. To overcome fear of one another, we must relate to one another and love one another. We must experience one another. And certainly, we could hear studies and read papers and hear stats um, about how maybe things aren't as unequal as you think. And there's all kinds of competing studies. But fear will not be overcome by studies and statistics and facts. It's overcome through relationships and experiences with one another. We are to respond to this injustice and to challenge what's going on in our culture the way that Jesus did with sacrificial love, with proactivity. I love this from The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People where Kobe says, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space lies human freedom. The freedom in our mind and heart of how to respond. Not with hate, not with despair, but with determination and grace. Knowing that Jesus set you an example to follow. When they hurled their insults at Him, He did not retaliate. Instead, He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. He chose to fight oppression by fulfilling all righteousness by sacrificing Himself on the cross and reaching out to all humanity and providing a healing balm for the human race. There's a call toward justice that Jesus gives us. We're called to respond because we serve a just King, our crucified Lord. God's heart of justice is deeply rooted in the Old Testament and the prophets and throughout the teachings and life and message of the New Testament. I want us to watch a short video to describe God's justice from the Bible Project. And then we'll come right back.
1: If you were a praying mantis it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate.
2: And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care.
1: If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other.
2: But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that. But we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that, too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others.
1: Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them.
2: And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families. And then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. If doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use, but what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice.
1: So justice and righteousness (laughs) are about a radical, selfless way of life.
2: Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like... Here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean
1: for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged, and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free. But he thwarts the way of the
2: wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up, as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them.
1: The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways.
2: Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others.
1: This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other
2: people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you humans what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God.
0: Tremendous video really appreciate the, the Bible teaching there and the depiction and, and the visualization of it. Jesus' example in life, His inspiration in death, and His power in the resurrection calls all of us to a godly life of justice, a lift-you-up type of justice. And I love that idea of justice as lifting people up that is depicted so clearly in that video, Jesus' example, we read in Luke so much about how he had a heart for the marginalized over and over. As you study the book of Luke, you will see he has a heart for the widow. We, we read about that. He has a heart for women over and over, giving special attention to women and their place and their importance and prominence. And here in Luke chapter 5, verse 12, we find that he speaks and ministers to a leper, and Outcast, an utter outcast. People did not want to be near them. Much less touch them. In verse 12 it says, Once when he was in one of the cities, there was a man covered with leprosy. Luke 5 verse 12. When he saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. Then Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, and said, I do choose. Be made clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him. His example is one of reaching into the marginalized areas of life, into people who have been marginalized and caring and touching. And I love the work that Hope Worldwide does, that our church started and supports. And I commend every one of us for all the work we've done. Uh, serving the elementary school right here in L.A., and uh, really beautifying it, going after, making a tangible difference. And that's what Jesus did. You know, as we go on in Luke 9, we see Jesus giving the foreshadowing, the prediction of His death, burial, and resurrection. And in verse 22, He says to His apostles, The Son of Man must undergo great suffering, and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And we know why He did that because it will provide the motivation, the cleansing, the opportunity for God to open his arms and say, I don't hold you responsible for the sin. I forgive you. And Jesus gives us that unmerited opportunity. We don't deserve the grace. We don't deserve the hope. We don't deserve the changed lives And when we get that, when we get that undeserved grace, that, that undeserved forgiveness, our natural response is to want to give it out to others. And so, the cross inspires us toward justice. But you know, the resurrection is maybe the most powerful in that it gives us the energy and the proof that God will bring justice and expects justice in this world. His kingdom has begun. We read in John 18 that He says, My kingdom is not of this world. And He says, Everyone on the side of truth listens to Me. He started a kingdom and its values are much different. See, His resurrection physically means that God wants to change things. Not just create a great little spiritual group that comes to church and hears lessons on Sundays or Wednesdays, but a group that acts, looks, feels, and and performs things that change the world tangibly in a way that reveals His kingship, His lordship. You know, many of us may resist the church being devoted to justice, but we need to be. It's clearly a part of Jesus' earthly ministry. It flows from His resurrection. And I want to give you a little idea that uh, in our heart, we could oppose it. We don't. We oftentimes think, "No, we don't get. It. We're not going to get involved in politics, but we are going to get involved in justice and changing things practically." We find opposition in the days of Jesus. If you look down in John or in Luke chapter 20, verse 27, says, "Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him a question: Teacher." Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married and died childless. Then the second and the third married her. And so in the same way, all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of God being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush, where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is God not of the dead, but of the living, for to him all of them are alive. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. And they no longer dared to ask him another question. So Jesus had opposition from the Sadducees regarding this concept of the resurrection. The Pharisees did believe in it, but it was a new teaching. They all thought that the, the resurrection, uh, they, they weren't sure the Pharisees believed it would happen at the end of time. But the Sadducees didn't want to believe that because they were entrenched in the power structures of society. They had the wealth. And a resurrection would mean a new change in reality. And so Jesus, He references the passage in Exodus at the burning bush, where he says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And he's gonna go on and tell Moses, and I'm gonna tell I'm gonna lead you and raise you up to lead your people out of oppression and slavery, because I am a God of justice. And the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, says that he's the king, that He physically resurrected, and God expects things to be set right. Now, we might not get the whole world set correctly until Jesus returns, but we need to give the world a taste of heaven on earth. And that's what justice is all about. You know, how do we respond to this? What do we do? We know that Jesus can relate to all of us. We know that Jesus sets us an example. He inspires and He empowers us. There's no question about that. He sets an example, he inspires, and he empowers. How do we respond as we look at justice, the need for justice in our world, and the example and inspiration and power of Jesus? Well, Jay Eubanks, one of our dear brothers in our ministry, uh, he sent me an email explaining things he thinks we can do to change things. And I really appreciate it. And Jay talked about making sure we don't minimize the pain and the trauma. And he talked about the importance of really learning and educating. But I, I put it into an action word for all of us. And here's what we can do. We can act. We can act justly, as Micah says, the prophet. Number one, we can advocate for the marginalized. We can advocate for our black brothers and sisters. And it's not enough for, just, for us to simply be non-racist. Of course, when we study the Bible, we go, oh, I'm not a racist, of course. None of us gets baptized thinking, yeah, i got a little racism in my heart. None of us do. But it's not enough to just be non-racist. We have to be anti-racist. Anti-racist. And I want to say something. I confess, when I saw Colin Kaepernick kneeling during the football game several years ago, I was conflicted. I didn't know what to think. Well, you know what I think now. I think he stood for what he believed by kneeling. And he wasn't, I don't think, defacing the soldiers. What he was saying is our country has not been the land of the free from his perspective as a black man growing up in it. He had courage. He was anti-racist. And I'll tell you, uh, it's inspiring. It's inspiring to see men put their life on the line, put their career on the line. And I think he owes He's owed respect on multiple levels. You know, there are pieces in all of us that maybe we don't quite see that have nuances of of racism in there. And we need to be willing to be anti-racist to deal with it. We started our culture, race, and kingdom team. We're going to be adding more people to it. We want it to be something that deals with the current dilemma that we're seeing in our culture. Certainly, oppression of black lives. But I know there's other lives that are marginalized, and we're going to care about them. As we move on, as we grow as a church, fighting injustice will be a part of the West Side Church. We must address issues. You know, there are many ways for us to start. There's many things we can do. We can write letters. We can march, take a stand, speak, talk about it. I really want to call all of us that we need to advocate, absolutely advocate for those that are marginalized and be anti-racist. But number two, we got to continually educate ourselves and others on the truth. Another thing that Jay told me, he says, we got to understand that. We got to educate one another. We got to learn what is going on. We need to learn about racism in our culture and our part in it. We need to see other people have studied deeply and honestly, there's a learning curve. There's a continuum. And we're all on that continuum of understanding, and we're on our under I think a continuing continuum of eradicating racism. But it may not happen completely in our lifetime, but we need to get on the learning curve. A question to ask yourself is how do people see you if if we need to experience relationship to have a connection, how do people see you? You need to educate yourself on how people experience you. What kind of unconscious biases do people feel from you? You know, Robin D'Angelo, who wrote um, White Fragility, she says, In my workshops, I often ask people of color, how often have you given white people feedback on our unaware yet inevitable racism? How often has that gone well for you, she asked the class. Eyes rolling, head shaking, and outright laughter follow, along with the consensus of rarely, if ever, as the response. I then ask, what would it be like if you could simply give us feedback, have us graciously receive it, reflect, and work to change the behavior? Recently, a man of color sighed and said, it would be Revolutionary. Well, I want to start that revolution. And I had the opportunity with my wife Carrie to sit down with one of our dear sisters who had many strong feelings and felt deep hurt over years of, um, favoritism and her experiences in the church. She felt marginalized. And we listened to her and she listened to us and, uh, there was connection there. There There's friendship building, experience with one another building. And she asked me to talk to other black men in my years of ministry that I have mentored and worked with over the years. And she asked that I I asked them if they have ever felt any kind of unconscious bias on my behalf from me. And I did that with two of the the main ministers that I've worked with. Uh, I've called more, but I'm waiting to talk to them. Uh, One of them, Jeff Hickman, who leads our church, co-leads our church in uh, the North River Church in Georgia. And and he said that he appreciated me uh, calling, but he hadn't ever felt that. He's going to think more, and uh, we, we spent years together uh, in the early days of our ministry. Um, but then I asked Kenny, our dear Kenny Izuchuku, who we love dearly, and he he thought long and hard, and he had some things, not racially oriented, he, there weren't unconscious bias racially. He said, I, I couldn't pin him on racism, but there were things he, he he felt, and I appreciated it, we talked, and we dialogued. There were other things that had to do with our career as ministers, and me as overseeing minister, and... And how he's doing. And it was great to connect. I want to learn. I want to understand. I'm going to ask more and more people. That's a great question. We've got to continually educate ourselves and educate others and be willing to listen and be humble and grow. And the third thing we can do is build trust by knowing and being known. Trust is built by knowing and being known. We've got to connect with each other deeply. It's not enough just to have black people and Hispanic people and Asian people and white people in our congregation. We need to know one another. Have one another over for dinner. Uh, Galatians 6 verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens. In this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. We need to carry each other's burdens. Feel the weight of the challenges in each Others lives. And when we do that, when we choose to carry each other's burdens, what divides us diminishes, and what unites us surfaces. We need to be a friend to one another deeply, know each other's lives. We need to advocate, we need to continually educate, and we need to build deep relationships by knowing each other and being known. And I want to close with a poem by Langston Hughes. He wrote a poem that I believe makes tremendous sense today. It's called, Oh, Let America Be America Again. Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet, and yet must be the land where every man is free. America, oh yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be. And I love the faith of this poem. The admittance of, the dream of America has not become reality. The land of the free. Because there's oppression. But I love the faith of this poet. a Civil rights poet. And it's the faith that Jesus has the faith that the kingdom of God will see justice done. And we must act and follow our just King whose life is an example, whose death is an inspiration, and whose resurrection empowers us. Let's go to Him in prayer as we thank Him and we pray for the communion at this time. Father, thank You. Thank You for sending Your Son. And Jesus, thank You so much. We want to act against injustice in our world. And we know, Jesus, You are our King and our hero. Thank You for Your example. Thank You for dying on the cross and giving us this free gift. And the resurrection inspires us every day to think that we can actually establish Your kingdom here in our time on earth. We love You. We thank You for Your blood poured out. We thank You for Your body given. In Jesus' name, amen. You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit the Westsidechurch.com, or LAICC.net.